In this episode of Investors and Operators, I am sitting down with two very important guests, Charlie Maynard and Ewan Relly, the co-founders of BDA Partners, where I worked for over six years, gave me my start in the career. And uh, Charlie, can you kind of start off in just the high level of BDA, and then we can rewind a little bit uh, to the, the founding story, and then you can could, could take it from there. You know, what is BDA today? BDA today is a financial advisor firm focused on Asia. Uh, you and I started back in 1996. We uh, had the same idea back then, which was a financial advisory firm focused on Asia, particularly Asian M&A. Um, and so we haven't been very imaginative in terms, in terms of um, getting, getting off the case. We've been very, very focused on, on, on just that. Ewan was actually working in Asian M&A when we started the firm, and he um, appreciated what Schroders were trying to do, and and frankly, Americans and Europeans were much more focused, ultimately, on what they could do in America and Europe. Um, and we thought that if we could just focus on Asia, we could really build a business, and 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 that's what we've done for 24 years. So it's very simple. What are kind of the facts and figures today? Like how many offices? How many people? Are there a particular focus besides Asian M&A? Nine offices. So Tokyo, Seoul, Shanghai, Hong Kong, Ho Chi Minh, Singapore, Mumbai, London, New York, over 100 bankers, uh, about 80 to 85% sell side in any single year, um, five sectors, uh, industrials including chemicals, consumer and, and retail, uh, services, technology and healthcare, um, and, and control cross-border M&A is, is, is a key focus, but we have good domestic strength in each of those core markets of, of China, Japan, Korea, Southeast Asia, and India. Ewan, can you kick off, and I know you guys met in Singapore, but what was, when, and how did this all happen? We had a mutual friend called, called Rob Kenny, and he um, <clears throat> mentioned to me one day that this guy, Charlie Maynard, was moving down to Singapore. And um, Charlie had a, had a new job within the same within the same company, Jardine Matheson. Charlie arrived in new in, in, in Singapore, and the first time I, I met him, I thought he seemed like a decent, solid. My my initial ob observations were right that he's quite uh, um, straightforward and uh, and reassuringly direct. And I told him at the time I'd been working for six years for a an investment banking firm. I'd had this great career, two years each in London, New York, and Singapore. But I was interested in doing something a bit more entrepreneurial. Uh, and I think Charlie, Charlie felt the same. He was also interested in, in pursuing something entrepreneurial. And I said, I think there's scope to set up an M&A boutique. Um, I think there's, a, there's a, a space in the market. And um, somewhat to my shock, Charlie said, I think it's a good idea. Why don't I buy some bacon and eggs and I'll come over to your apartment on Saturday and we can sit down and start writing a business plan. We kind of accidentally fell into business together. Charlie, how did you go from the bacon and eggs business plan to really, when was like the first client? Um, how long did it take to really kind of get started up? The business plan was useful because basically we just, I think we wrote it and said, look, you send it to 10 people, I'll send it to 10 people and, and ask them to be as rude about it as possible. Um, and, and they were pretty rude. Um, but that was helpful just in terms of the feedback loop and improving things. And, and the other thing is neither of us were American and Ewan made you know, a brilliant call, which is we need to get ourselves to the States um, because they don't really care where you come from. They will give you an opportunity. Um, name, brand name is much less important than it is in, in Europe or in Asia. 
and um, and that worked. We also tried that line on the immigration service, applied for visas, um, and they bought it too. So we said we're uniquely qualified for H-1B visas because um, if we don't come, we won't be able to employ anybody. And so we got visas, and, and then when we got visas, we're like, oh my God, we're going to have to resign from our jobs, which I did with tears in my eyes and a shaking voice and <laughs> completely terrifying. Fortunately, Ewan followed through and did the same. Early 20s, had a great job. You were sent over to Asia with a reputable company. And I mean, what was kind of going through your mind in starting this? You know, if, if, if all went to pot, I'd have lost all the money I had in the world, which wasn't very much. It would have probably fall, taken 18 months to two years to fall apart. And, and I could probably have found another job somewhere somehow. The risk wasn't that high. And so, so we went with it and, and we got ourselves on a plane um, and, and arrived in New York, found a little broom cupboard office and then, and then tried to find a client. And, and, and Ewan had a relationship which, which was um, a headhunter of all people that, that allowed us to, they gave us quite a lot of money to help them set up offices in Hong Kong and Singapore, or was it just Singapore? Maybe just Singapore. That um, bankrolled us for quite, for, for the first year or so. Meanwhile, we were doing um, some uh, fun marketing trips around Minneapolis, Chicago, Cleveland, Detroit. Um, this is more or less pre-internet. Um, staying up. And what was it like uh, pre-internet <laughs> marketing in the US, you guys come in here, you know, not knowing the landscape too much and just finding business. The internet did exist, uh, was just getting going. We had AOL, um, uh, our first email accounts were AOL accounts. And actually I felt at the time that already um, business was being democratized quite a lot. Before, at the very beginning of my career, Goldman Sachs had a massive built-in advantage because they had access to information that no member of the public could, could you know, was, was basically a massive insider dealing. <laughs> and even in the very early days of, of um, you know, AOL, we could, we could begin to search for things online. But, um, but yeah, we used, we used phone books and directories and, and, and libraries and hustled our way in. Mid to late 20s isn't a bad time to try and set up a business. You know, we obviously had fewer responsibilities. We didn't have wives or children or anything else. I think a lot of the clients, uh, prospective clients who we went to saw, they looked at us and they sort of wondered, are these guys for real? And, and, and yeah, a couple of them tried us. And we were asking people to hire us, pay us $25,000 a month. Uh, we were asking American companies to pay us $25,000 a month for a trial three months to go and see if we could find good joint venture partners or acquisition opportunities in Asia. At the time, Wall Street analysts were telling um, uh, CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, go, go and find opportunities in emerging markets where GDP growth is high. So in a way, we had a willing audience, actually. People were intrigued, but I think people, obviously, they had to suspend disbelief uh, uh, to, um, to write us a check and, and, and believe that we could help them get a deal done. Did you feel that you were underpricing yourselves appropriately, overpricing? Because I'm kind of going through this right now and it's just I've kind of perennially undervalued myself. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs when they have an unknown or untested product or service and they have less experience in the market, they don't really know what to price. They just kind of ask a whole bunch of other people or they just you know do the wrong thing for a year. Well, I, th I think very simply we knew what 
other banks had charged or did charge for that. And we just said the same number. Steve Weber, uh, bless his cotton socks, CFO at Nalco Chemical Company, which was the biggest water treatment chemical company in the world. He met us with a guy called Steve Landsman, who we also still love. And Steve was like, how bad can it be? You know, for 25 grand, nobody else is walking to our office and offering us you know, to help us buy businesses in Southeast Asia. If these guys do that, great. And if they don't, we won't pay them more than the first month. But we not had to knock on a lot of doors to persuade many people to write us. But, but actually, we did, we did get a couple of things right. We, we correctly addressed the market where there was a real need. We correctly addressed the market where, um, you know, the, 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 the great irony of the U.S. remains today that the, um, there are more investment bankers running around this market than anywhere else in the world. But Americans value good service, value good advice, and, and, and consequently pay the best fees in the world. And so I think we were, we were sort of selling into a, a market and a, a true, a really addressable market. Don't try and underprice yourself and don't try and, you know, if you try and offer some sort of too much of a bargain, then it probably seems like you're not, you know, uh, taking yourself seriously. So I think we had, we had, we had the bravado uh, to tough it out and, and put on a suit and a tie and, and look people straight in the face and say, we are worth $75,000 of your money. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think especially for entrepreneurship, just like knowing your value and being confident in, in it. So that's like the late 90s. But what was kind of like the next chapter of BDA? I would probably name 2006, 2007, um, when we saw what was happening in Asia in terms of the development of private equity. And we said, if you're in M&A, you want to, everybody knows this already, you want to be on the sell side. Um, and so being on the buy side for big multinationals was fine in that it would give us great um, knowledge of various parts of the market as we went around helping them find businesses to buy. But, you know, that's not good enough. You, you want to be on the sell side because that's where the probabilities are in your favor. We, in 2000, we'd be, we, we got gotten ourselves to China and set up an office in, in, in Shanghai. In 2002, um, we set up offices in Japan and Korea. Um, and, and India came very soon after that. And, and by the time we'd done that, we could really validly say we're covering the key economies of Asia. And, and, and having that network effect of being able to be agnostic, you know, it's not just about China, it's, it's you know, we are covering all of Asia, um, plus the US and Europe. That was a very, very powerful message and that really gave us a great setup to be able to do a sell side business and be able to say if you're selling a business and you want to reach global buyers think of us we um wanted to get a third partner because charlie and i were traveling back and forth from the us to asia and it was just becoming ridiculous the the the, the long distance travel um and i said let's not get someone who went to oxford or cambridge or worked for schroeder's or, or jardine whoever we pick should be someone different from us. And Charlie said, yeah, you're right. But there is this one guy, Andrew Huntley, who's, who's, who's clever. So we, we, got, we, we went into business with, with, with Andrew. We persuaded Andrew to join us. And then we hired this young, young, uh, quirky, ambitious young man called Paul Giacomo, who now um, is uh, one of the four partner, you know, uh, senior managing directors, kind of the core management team with us. Uh, today, I think that was really important. There's one other point I'll make, which which um, is a, a testament to Charlie, not to me. I thought that we were in a people business uh, and a business where it required selling skills and hustle and sales, you know, just ability to, to to engage with with potential clients and persuade them to hire us. 
actually there's a lot of as you start building cost and, and, and shape and structure to the organization data is really important and Charlie started to do you know just huge amounts of analysis all the time as to where the mark which markets were promising what the size of the M&A market was in each country um, you know really and, 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 and what sorts of clients we ought to be chasing and what sorts of fee return we were getting from chasing different types of clients and I think Charlie was was quick to understand that actually um, you know we were building a, a complex system and today we still wrestle all the time with precisely what services should we offer and we've really learned a lot just from carefully analyzing what we're doing what we've done in the last couple of years but also what we can find about the broader market around us and the market we operate in. Um, I'm going to add one other thing, which was we were we have been helped a lot through the years by tying ourselves uh, in partnerships with um, with very good quality Western investment banking firms. Initially, Western. Finally, in the last um, ten years, we've been partnered with with William Blair, which is a very high quality Chicago. Uh, investment banking firm and that's been a great partner for us in, in many different respects number one just by being associated with them helps our reputation number two we get to see what they do well and mimic that uh, you know we learn from William Blair in the most developed markets in the world which is the US and Europe and we try to apply those skills to Asia um, and, and, and you know they they brought us capital as well and, 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 and we've been able to send our analysts and associates on the William Blair training programs, which is massively valuable for us. So having some sort of alliance with a good quality partner has been incredible. And then more recently, we've tied up with um, Development Bank of Japan, DBJ, which is a very blue chip uh, Japanese government financial institution who have given us really excellent access uh, into that market. When you look at back at the, you know, 24 years of running the firm, how do you think about the difference of the difference between management and leadership and maybe how you have evolved as both i i think if you're if you're if you're trying to be a good manager you should try to be a good leader um and and, and you know trying to set a good example um about how you work and 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 how you behave giving authority to people um, delegating, trusting people—you know, those are things we all we all try very hard to do, and, and hopefully we succeed. You know, most of the time. Was it's delegating hard. easy for you? You hire people you trust, and um, and you and, and you stay close, um, and you talk a lot, and you email a lot. Charlie and I are quite different, um, and we've had at times a tempestuous relationship. Sometimes when business is going well, we get along like a house on fire. When things are going less well. We tend to challenge challenge each other and niggle each other. For me, leadership and management have have been actually quite central to that. Has been the way that we've um, tried to provoke each other in positive ways, and uh, I think generally we have a common ethos about trying to protect our junior staff. Charlie's quite strong moral sense of what's right and wrong and what's the right thing to do has been very helpful to our firm. He's been the, the conscience of BDA. Uh, and sometimes that drives me crazy because I want to take a bit more risk and, and over promise because you know, I want to hustle our way into something which I think we could maybe you know, fake our way into. Uh, and Charlie, Charlie keeps me um, 
from 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 doing anything stupid sometimes but it has been really important that we've taken care of of um of our employees you know it doesn't always work out great not everybody is the by definition not everyone we employ is going to work for bda for their whole careers but we try to uh, be respectful to to, to to people before during before they get hired during the time they're hired and and you know after they leave us for whatever reason and i think that's um uh, uh, that, that cultural quality has been quite important to the success of our firm because I think I think clients see it as well and I think you know if you if you develop habits like that you inculcate that behavior in your co-workers and, and it generally resonates through you know everything that we do I'm not saying we're perfect or you know we've never we've never made mistakes or or we've never um, uh, behaved rashly all of those things we have done but but by trying to sort of keep an eye on each other try to uh, imbue the business with with positive good qualities um, uh, and that's not you know that's that's kind of enlightened self-interest that's nothing that doesn't reduce your capitalist incentive to make money you turn down business when when it's not in the long-term interest of the firm uh, even if there's a even if there's money to be made in the short term so we try to do the right thing that's at the center of of how we try to run the firm it's interesting this dynamic of when you're getting started and you know before you've quote unquote made it you know you want to take on every, any business it's a thousand dollars yes of course that helps out pay the pay the bills but then realizing that there is that trade-off you know like you guys spent 12 months to get the first big client, but it was at a price and scope that you wanted. It's just interesting that delicate balance as a entrepreneur of taking any business to pay bills and get traction versus having the discipline to wait out for larger projects where you can focus on fewer things. I, I have very, very fond memories of starting the business with Ewan and, 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 and Andy and Paul and, and, and Jeff and Mark and Jeffrey and Howard and, and you know, everybody else. Um, so that's great. But the future is you know, much more exciting in terms of you know, what we started out doing and, and what we are planning on doing are just night and day. What does the next couple of years look like for, for BDA? We, we've just got a fantastic position. You know, nobody is as focused in our market um, as we are. And, and having a team that has been together and knows each other and trusts each other and works well together um, and is focused on those sectors and focused on the product of, of M&A that we're focused on is, is really unusual. And, and frankly, it's really hard to do because many of our competitors, you know, different offices don't talk to each other. Um, and and you know, that, that's just not the case in our firm. Um, and therefore being able to serve our clients with something which is really global and, and really local um, is, is in many of our markets a very unusual offering. And, and that means we can win uh, pretty frequently against some pretty strong competition um, on ever increasingly large mandates. Um, and so, you know, we're pushing up our average enterprise value, you know, you know, north of 100 million bucks and, and, and you know, there's plenty of things in the 500 to a billion bucks um, that you know, we're working on. And that is, um, you know, that's exciting. And Asia is growing all the time. Yes, COVID's a pain, um, but you know, largely the Asian markets have been um, uh, treated relatively lightly compared to the European and American markets. And, and you know, there, there's you know, huge amounts of 
of business to be done. Um, and you know, aiming high and going for that is is absolutely our ambition now and, <laughs> and going forward. And you know, continuing to raise that game. How would you kind of characterize where we're at right now in the Asian M and A market? I, you, and you and I and, and others often look at kind of the progression of private equity in in the U.S. and then how that hit Europe in in really the 90s and and how that's hit Asia over the last 10 10 plus years and and the scale of funds being raised and the number of funds there are and how that's multiplying and how places like Japan who really never accepted private equity are selling you know the likes of Hitachi and Panasonic are selling businesses to to major private equity firms left right and center and if they do it, then that's going to trickle down to all the others. And we're seeing it every day grow. And you know, that scale of opportunity is, is huge. I spent my whole career waiting for the coming Asian M&A boom. Uh, and I still make that joke today. You know, it feels like we're almost there today. But obviously, the pandemic, um, the pandemic is, is, is a fascinating experience. We went, actually, we, you know, in our business, you're, you're a fool at one end and you're lucky at the other. People don't give you credit often for being in the right place at the right time. They, 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 uh, they call you lucky. We had the um, Asian financial crisis still by called the IMF crisis by the Koreans. But, you know, the Thai baht devalued and there was an Asian financial crisis, really the year that we set up off BDA, which, which uh, made, made, certainly made my friends uh, laugh a lot about uh, going into Asian M&A as the, as, the, as the Asian markets collapsed. 10 years later, everybody wanted to be in China and, um, and we were in the right place. Um, now the pandemic is, is, is definitely hard, although somehow, oddly, we're having, I would say, a better year than last year. And we are very consciously and deliberately trying to find ways to gain market share during the pandemic. Again, there's nothing wrong with being ruthless in a business sense, I think, uh, to the extent that some of our competitors are struggling and we can selectively hire great people and, 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 and take, you know, get, get the attention of their clients. We're, we're doing that. Um, so uh, Charlie's right. Private equity is, is at an early stage in its development in, in Asia, but it's big. And we have um, the biggest private equity firms in the world, Bain, Carlyle, Warburg, Pincus, TPG, all of those guys have big Asia funds now. They have also, um, you know, uh, spawned new high quality, pretty big Asian spin-offs, firms mm. like uh, MBK in Korea, BAG in, in Hong Kong. So the, the, the bearing in, 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 you know, across Asia. Um, there are some very, very high quality and big, big Asian private equity firms now. And, and, and we're, you know, carefully and deliberately telling them we can give them the best quality advice uh, uh, to help them sell, you know, businesses up to a billion dollars. We track very carefully what every private equity firm has bought in Asia. And we are thinking very hard in each of our sectors about which of those assets we would like to sell, which that we think we could sell well and be paid well for selling them. Um, and, our, and, our, and our goal and our ambition, you asked where we might be in a few years' time. We'd like to do 30 deals a year. And, uh, and the kind of operational leverage in our business is, is, is huge as a result of that. We have, as Charlie said, a good reputation. People know us. Clients hire us. Um, at least uh, if you a guy on the streets never heard of BDA, but if you're a private equity guy in Asia of any scale at all, 
you know very well who BDA is. Um, so we have that scope, I think now, to not only ride the industry upwards, but to do bigger and better deals than we do today uh, and, and grow faster than the industry. Give the highlights about maybe some opportunities and challenges in each of the key Asian markets. So starting with Japan. Uh, well, look, I mean, Japan I'll, I'll go quickly. I mean, Japan is, is what I've already mentioned, which is the the disaggregation of, of, of conglomerates and, 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 and the increasing acceptance of M&A as a corporate tool um, with, 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 with large groups beginning to sell more and more businesses in order to focus on uh, the, the, the key parts of their business. Um, and uh, private equity and international buyers and domestic buyers being, being key counterparties to that. Um, in Korea, which is often overlooked by, by many um, competitors, we um, have a fantastic team that's done a great job of developing that market. There are um, obviously top tier and mid tier chable, often family controlled as opposed to uh, third party management controlled. Um, that allows decision making to be very quick and they have also, um, if anything, maybe faster than Japan, decided to focus um, on on their key businesses. So, so they were national champions, and they're now many of them seeking to be global champions. But you can't be a global champion at everything. So, picking your winners and exiting um, the ones that won't be winners. Um, China is, at least in some in, in some sectors, rather out of fashion at the moment. I mean, people need to remember just how excited people were between let's say 2005 and 2012 i i think at the moment while it's a little bit out of favor it's the second biggest economy in the world it's growing at pick a number on average you know six percent or so that's a fantastic position to in a fantastic country to be in a fantastic market to develop as founders of businesses who who started businesses in the 90s or the 80s or, or the 2000s exit out of the businesses and their single children don't want the business in many cases m a really starts to become a key corporate tool before we kind of move on from china you know, you've been there for over 20 years. You've seen the ups and downs in the economy as well as trends with M&A cross-border. With what we are experiencing now, would you characterize it as short-term or systemic? How should people think about responding to this right now? I think you need to look past the politics quite a bit. Um, uh, so I, I, I think the fundamental economic uh, situation in China is very, very strong. Um, and will continue to be very, very strong. Um, and uh, and I think people need to be working on that basis and position themselves on that basis um, over the next 5, 10, 20, 50 years. Um, so I think an exit from China, you know, I would be fixing it rather than exiting it. Um, it, it would be my my recommendation. Singapore is is obviously benefiting from Hong Kong's troubles. Um, has got a great private equity community, the, the natural center for Southeast Asia. We've got a particular standout in Vietnam, which is um, super hot right now. We have an, we're, we're one of the few advisors who have got an office on the ground in Vietnam. And, and they, I spoke to the number two in the office this morning and they're going gangbusters, um, uh, both in terms of M&A and in terms of capital raise. So, so that's just very, very exciting. Um, 
and, and, and India as well, um, we um, have not been particularly strong historically on tech and healthcare, and that's something that we fixed. And there's huge opportunities in there, and also in the other um, sectors that we work on, and, and, and Kumar's done a great job of running that business. So. With uh, cross-border M&A right now focused on India, is this um, more relevant now given the China dynamic, or is it kind of historically similar to what you've seen for trends? The Indian consumer is coming to be a meaningful feature of the market for the first time. And, and in, we think health tech and consumer are extremely well placed in India today. We were right to be cautious about India for many years and, and we'll see how, how quickly it comes to life now. But um, we're seeing a lot of evidence of, of serious private equity investment into the market. Either individually or as a company, what is your favorite deal that you worked on? One, and the, la and the second thing is, what are you most hopeful about? My favorite deal is the one I uh, uh, signed yesterday because it <laughs> still feels good, um, which was a rather complicated uh, uh, sale by a US multinational um, to an Indian multinational of a um, controlling stake in a hybrid US-Indian multinational uh, in the health sector. Very complicated to manage the um, interests and relationships of uh, a pretty demanding buyer, pretty demanding seller, and a pretty demanding uh, founding family. Um, complicated, involved uh, 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 really difficult negotiations to balance everybody's risks and interests and uh, we're getting paid fairly well for doing it. So that's been great fun. And um, every deal I ever do, I think is, they're, surely they're gonna be easier in the future. <laughs> they, never, they, never, they almost are never easy. Once in a blue moon, one falls into your lap and, and, and transacts itself. But generally, they, are, they require, they, they, they uh, add to the number of gray hairs on the side of my head uh, meaningfully. But, um, but it, if, by God, it feels good when you get them done. You know, they all they all cause a lot of pain on the whole. So 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 the ones I look back on are normally the ones which I you know died three times and took too much time just because it was just so much blood, sweat, tears, and toil. Um, so I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna call out one because they're not really my favourites. The ones that remember str the, the most, they're just damn hard work. I think the second part of your question was you know what 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 are we going for? Focus on what we do um, and scale. Uh, my, one of my one of my less favourite politicians, Boris Johnson, is saying "build, build, build," and you know that's what I feel about BDA: build, build, build. <laughs> well, guys, this has been awesome. I really, really appreciate the time with this, and uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to interview you both, and also for truly changing my life, and you know, give me a shot at at, at going from English teacher to banker. <laughs> You've, you've come a long way from the young man I met, and uh, it's good to know that you can you prove there's life after BDA as well. So. <laughs> Thanks, guys, so much for the time. Very good to see you, and thank you. Thank you. you.